Yo, what's up? It's the Fight Site MMA podcast. This is the, the regular crew. We've had guests a bunch of weeks in a row, but just for the record, the regular crew is uh, Shriram and myself. Shriram's the host. I, I help. Um, you're also a host since you're regular now. We are co-lead hosts. We are both co-hosts, if, however you want to call it. Um, so, you know, good news or bad news, depending on if you like us. Uh, recently, we were told we need to find our personalities. And, you know, it's actually very difficult when you've been yourself your whole life to find a different self to be on air. So I'm going to steal something from my accounting professor and say the start of my personality is everyone has to call me O Captain, my captain. <laughs> See, who wouldn't, who wouldn't like this guy? I just don't understand it. I don't um, like me. Yeah, if you if you don't like us, then uh, don't listen. There's some advice for you right there. Okay, but yeah, uh, this podcast is actually about fights, not about us, as much as some people apparently want it to be. And uh, it's a really good fight, the one that we're going to talk about. This will be out after our prediction panel came out. Uh, I highly doubt we'll be able to top the analytical content of that one, just because that's four analysts each getting space to break down each fighter and the fight and the matchup and whatever else. So that's why we do that format is because it's awesome for covering this kind of content, but we're going to take a stab at it again. And this is Shriram's second time talking about the fight in as many days. So he's going to be sharp, sharp as hell. And uh, I have like nothing good to say about this fight. So <laughs> it's going to be interesting, but I strongly disagree. Oh, we'll see. Uh, to help us out, uh, we have we have our special guest uh, panelist with us. It's uh, it's Dan Albert, and uh, I'll say where you might know him from after he introduces himself, just so I don't do any overlapping. But Dan, hello. How are you? Tell the people who you are if they don't know you. Uh, I am the person now formerly known as Dan Albert. Uh, you see, the backstory here is they all miss the other Dan or Martin, whatever his name is. But they couldn't find a good replacement, so they got an uglier one, yours truly, here for the task. And although I can't probably live up to his good name, I will do my best. Um, mostly yes, a monopoly uh, on dance. Whoa, yeah. Uh, otherwise, um, I don't really have anything interesting to say about myself. Uh, you can just find me on Twitter where I want do one of five things things but sometimes i write articles about fight breakdowns and stuff and i'm okay at it i think you're pretty good and oh, he also talks yeah, about video games at a very analytical uh technical level which i can't do and uh lots of other cool topics so dan's a good follow definitely follow dan and he publishes his own breakdowns and he's done guest posts on the fight site and there will be more more collaboration to come and we, we definitely respect dan's giant brain uh, we find all these brain geniuses on Twitter and we, we take them under, we take them into our circle and we exploit their labor. And it's just a, it's a great little system we have here. And uh, just well, to refute your, your uglier Dan comment, well, it's true that, you know, very few people can live up to Danny Martin's beauty. Uh, you are not ugly. So uglier, perhaps. But I mean, and also, you're probably more positive about Calvin Cater, which that's, is what I call inner The main reason you're here is so we can have a, a Cater positive Dan. Okay. I wouldn't call me the most positive person in the world, but I, I promise to disappoint. Nice. Um, yeah. Speaking, speaking of Danny, uh, it's, it's such a shame 
because you know there has been a cater specific podcast with Danny Martin on it in the past in this podcast you know just in, in the biggest fight of his career it's just such, it's such a shame not to have Danny Martin here because Danny Martin is the biggest cater hater I have ever witnessed in my life I don't know where it came from I think I do know where it came from actually yeah I know where it came from and he has this thing where he he invests in a fighter he, he sees them and he likes them he likes what they do and then he decides that they need to live up to the highest standard possible. And if they're even a little bit less than he thought they were, then they are bad and actually terrible and would lose to anyone who can kick. Uh, and that's kind of what happened <laughs> with that, with that whole cater thing. Um, so yeah, he's just been raging against them for a long time. So we're just going to you know, keep Danny's memory alive by talking about all the fighters he hates every time it comes up. Uh, but let's, let's, let's swerve into the positive direction. So just a little bit of background on this fight. Uh, it's Max Holloway versus Calvin Cater. It's the main event. This fight's going to be on ABC, which is pretty cool. Uh, you know, cable networks on, on, on a, uh, a small number channel. I think it's like one of the first five channels. I don't know. But yeah, it's going to get a lot of eyes on it. Unfortunately, the rest of the card is super weak sounding. I cannot predict what the fights will be like, but just, you know, not using any established, established forces out there besides the co-main event, which complicated and we'll get to uh so yeah definitely a huge huge slot here for uh holloway and cater also coming off of a really long break in the fights so i think you know fans who are already part of the base are gonna be looking forward to her like oh finally the ufc is back and everyone's on board no fatigue ready to go uh we'll see how our fatigue is by the end of the card but you know heading into the event we're, we're pretty psyched uh so this is a weird one for max holloway it's his first non-title fight since 2016 yeah the ricardo llamas fight was the last time holloway didn't fight for a title because pettis was for an interim title and he won the title off aldo two defenses interim title fight with boyer defended his title against edgar and then uh two title fights straight with volkanovsky um it's also his first fight uh since 2019 not against alexander volkanovsky which is uh fresh a fresh matchup uh you know volkanovsky i'm sure is extremely frustrating to fight so it'll be nice to have somebody a little bit different albeit more dangerous in some ways not better but more dangerous yeah not as tricky but yeah yeah a, a strange matchup for sure so uh that fight was in july so a nice a nice time to turn around for holloway and then for cater kind of a weird spot just because he kind of activated himself into being a top contender which, I mean, I love that. I love that Cater is a top contender, but he didn't actually beat any one ranked high to do it. Um, we, we were always really high on him when he beat uh, Andre, not Andre Feely, but Andre Feely was a great debut win in the Shane Burgos fight. Both these guys, I think uh, Dan has written about that fight before, uh, but both those guys showed you know a very high level of striking for MMA, and it was also very exciting. And Cater you know, really announced himself with that one. A little disappointing with the Moicano fight just because Moicano uh, had his number more or less, you know, was able to exploit everything that was wrong with his game. Beats Chris Fishgold. That's a hard name to say. I had to, I had to get ready for that. Um, and then the Lamas knockout was, was a big deal for a lot of people just because Lamas has been highly ranked for a long time. And it was a very emphatic way to knock him out. I think it was just a one, two, but it was gorgeous. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Around the shot. So that got a lot of, a lot of attention. <laughs> Uh, then he got put in another high-profile matchup. So the OC really, I think, has been investing in him 
uh, pretty much right off the bat. As soon as he gets a big win, they give him a big spot, a big chance to do something for his career. Dropped the ball twice now, I would say. Um, it's his two biggest matchups he's lost so far. The Zabit fight was weird. Tosi just dropped the ball down the stairs. Um, the Zabit fight was weird because he did look a little lost at times, but then came on super strong in the third. And as I predicted, because I'm so smart, he was very hard to wrestle and you know disproved a lot of people's theories about that fight, except for mine, because I'm a genius. Uh, so now we find ourselves with Cater on another two-fight win streak. The Jeremy Stevens fight, I thought was a really great performance from him because he, uh, you know, he had to deal with kicking <laughs> and, and Stevens looked like, you know, the best kicker he's ever been. Uh, and, and Cater didn't seem to have that much of a problem with it and uh, countered Stevens entries. And I think uh, we'll get to it a little bit, but I think that also addresses some of the things that people say about Cater. Uh, and then the Dan Ige fight, honestly, I don't remember anything about it. So let's start with this. Uh, the evolution of Cater's game, you might call it, you know, from where he was, let's call it, you know, two years ago to where he is now. Hello, Toasty. Uh, how, how do you guys feel about Cater? Do you think he's developing in his game? Because there's this, this narrative that fighters who are deep into their careers uh, as Cater is don't really change that much. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think he just is who he is at this point, honestly. Like, um... I think it's mostly been a function of the match. Like, Kato's actually a super weird case because he pretty much walked into the UFC a, a, a finished product, top 10 at least fighter. And you can, like, kind of tell by the way he beat Andre Philly, who was, like, underranked for the longest time. Uh, and, you know, obviously the Burgos fights. Just, like, he's run into tough matchups, but those tough matchups would also be tough for, like, a lot of fighters up at the top. So he's just now hitting the point where he's ranked somewhat appropriately. But, yeah, I don't really think that he's... Um, He's improving necessarily. And I think the way that he kind of looks at fights means that he's not going to be making any huge leaps in terms of what he does. But what I do think is that we're seeing more of his skill set against opponents who work better into it. Like, for instance, when we saw the Moicano fight, we were like, oh, Cater can't deal with kicks whatsoever. He's so bad. Oh, my God. And then you see him against someone who's a little bit worse at kicking and someone like Jeremy Stevens. And Cater just kind of checked his kicks, outkicked him. Didn't really punish the kicks, but at least, you know, had some idea what to do with them. So I think we're it's less that Cater's improving and more that he walked into a shark tank and we're learning more about how he deals with different parts of it. Um, when I was re-watching Cater's career the, over the last week, a um, few things stood out to me. I think in some regards, there are some improvements that he's made, specifically in trying to push kind of his pocket game a little more. I do think for all intents and purposes, his offensive ring craft still leaves much to be desired. Uh, specifically, like in terms of falling guys and trying not to specifically create entries off that lead hand. But the main thing I've seen is how he started like manipulating the center line a lot more with how he creates offense. Now, mind you, I think part of the reason he gets away with it so much now is due to like certain, I, I guess the word would be depth to kind of who he's fighting. Because, like, when you look at, like, Stevens, Ige, and Zabit, et cetera, like, they don't exactly have the most static, like, effective, versatile guards or head movement in the world. So, typically, like, Cater can kind of create more entries off of that. But another thing I've noticed is that Cater has started turning his opponents more off the center line and attacking with hooks first instead of that jab. And 
usually he's firing a lot more typically now whether or not that's the thing that's going to really like get him far probably not but I think he's improved to some regard but I think he's a very good fighter but he's not as good as it feels like he should be and there's just uh, several issues to that but I think like there's a bunch of like overlying reasons for it and I, I think interestingly like um he always poses an in- interest yeah interesting kind of juxtaposition to Burgos I think because you have like two very talented guys and it, kind of two different like mentalities as technicians and yet it kind of seems like they kind of try to get by or at least their team kind of lets them get by just upon like them having an inherent in that inherent advantage in like their respective like skills i guess um i i suppose like there there are a bunch of questions going into this about like how much improvements he's made whether or not that's going to make a difference but i i definitely think there are some things he is getting better at or at least trying to fix he's just probably not allocating it according to his opponents effectively is it here's my uh, really simplistic summary of some of the things I thought you said. Um, would you say it's fair that instead of like uh, you know broadening his game or filling in any any major gaps people identified, he's strengthening his strengths. He's getting better at, at the areas he's already good at. I'd say kind his own of. strategies. Yeah, I think like he's trying to refine some things. Um, I don't think he's refined it though. Like I I can say he's refining some things to try to push them a little more. But um, I, I don't think he's at the point where he needs to be, though, or like at least should be, where it kind of makes it easier to like see him fight guys who are kind of equipped to beat him or give him trouble. Mm-hmm. Cool. And before, I mean, oh, go ahead. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, I think I kind of struggle with that because I think the way that Cater came into the UFC and his second fight being Shane Burgos, who's very, very good but also works into his game perfectly. I think it's kind of set um, like an artificial ceiling on how much we think that he should, like where he should be. Where I think, like for instance, like we see someone who's really, really sharp mechanically. He's incredibly sharp even tactically off his own jab. Uh, he's fantastic on the counter. And we see like he should be very, very good in a, like an all-terrain fighter. And I think we kind of underestimate how few true all-terrain fighters exist. Now he's fighting one of them this weekend. Max Holloway is genuinely one of the most versatile fighters I've ever seen in the sport, period. But the reason a performance like Michael Johnson versus Edson Barboza is so shocking to me is because people don't tend to do that. If someone wants to move backwards, they move backwards and they're not good moving forwards. So I guess the point that I'm making is that I think Calvin Gator kind of is who he's meant to be. And I think he can beat a lot more fighters than people think just based, like for instance, like Danny Gay, he fought a, uh, he fought a, Fairly sharp fight, in my opinion. Uh, he attacks certain points of Cater's game, such as the dislike of moving forward and the high guard, and that he uh, drew Cater forward and attacked with body hit combinations and the blitzes. That if Cater was not as good as he was supposed to be, I think he wouldn't have been able to deal with that. But he was able to beat a bad matchup just by being that good. And I think that's like an inelegant way to deal with fights. Like Alexander Volkanovsky would never be like, I'm just this good, I'll just deal with it the way I deal with it and not deal with you. But it's also kind of proof that he's that good, like genuinely, if that makes sense. Maybe. Maybe it makes sense. Um, as we've learned recently, I am too stupid. 
like once you get like past two sentences i'm like i don't know if i follow you anymore disagree um, but yeah all, all good things being said uh and, and again like i don't have any real memory of the danny gay fight uh, so i can't can't confirm nor deny anything about it um so talking about max a little bit more uh same same kind of premise you know what his trajectory is like uh, i'm not going to go all the way through his career but you know just in in recent memory uh i think we all had a pretty good idea of who he was you know around the the aldo and pettis fights which are very different fights you know very different opponents extremely different approaches uh max showing off different parts of his game against both of them uh huge huge gap of time one year between aldo two and ortega and if people remember uh that was when in that time period uh it might have been like october or something uh it was like july yeah it was like summer summer summerish late summerish um max was gonna step in and, and fight habib he's gonna uh replace tony and he was like giving interviews or something like that doing some official media and he was slurring his speech and he wasn't looking so good and, and Bisping was questioning it and uh they I, I think they pulled him from the fight like they didn't let him weigh in or, or something like that he wasn't deemed fit to continue um and the theory at the time was like he had a stroke or something like that it was really tough it was really tough and people were really questioning if this was the end of his career or at least his and the end of his time as an elite fighter and i remember that being a very plausible theory just because it it looked really bad (laughs) which really really bad um and some people said oh he's just hawaiian he's not slurring which i thought was in poor taste at the time in hindsight it's very funny but it still might be in poor taste anyway he came back in december and he just beat the crap out of brian ortega like did not get hit very much did not look like he was at all physically bothered um and just battered him and you know going into that fight the analyst community i don't think anyone doubted that he was going to do that if he, if he was him we just weren't sure if he was going to be him so we didn't really learn anything new about him as a fighter at the time but we were like okay max is still max and then he fought dustin poirier and took probably the most damage he ever has in any single fight in his career um, just because of Poi's power counter punching and the rest of his game. Uh, and at that point, we're like, okay, I remember from before when we thought his career might be over because of, you know, perhaps brain damage related things. Now, maybe this is the end. Um, he got a very favorable matchup next against Frankie Edgar. That was like a blessing just because I think we wanted other people to get the title shot at the time. Uh, but Edgar really was a blessing just because that's someone that at this point in his career is not hitting you that hard <laughs> uh, and is also, you know, not that great at getting to you to hit you. And if he's going to pursue a game plan, it's probably going to involve a lot of wrestling, which is, it's all very forgiving. And uh, we, we thought, okay, this is going to be a litmus test for where Max is on his way back. What, what, where is he physically? That's always been our question, really the past, you know, two years of this narrative is, is where is Max physically? We didn't really have any doubts about his game. Uh, causing him any problems except for a little bit in the Poirier fight but you know a lot of people just chalk that up to the size uh, going up to lightweight um the Edgar fight was weird because uh that was a fight where he really could have afforded to be aggressive and do exactly what he did to Ortega really um but he was much more conservative and he took the back foot and he uh wasn't exactly countering Edgar he was countering Edgar a little bit but he was just you know taking some steps back letting Edgar close the distance, then starting his combinations that way. Um, also, you know, 
letting Edgar have to close the distance for his own takedowns, you know, and wizarding off and doing all the tall guy defensive wrestling things that he's very good at. Um, and he looked good in that fight. He won comfortably. It's just, you know, we thought that should have been a blowout at the time. And we're worried that this is new defensive max and this is how he's going to be. Um, so that brings us into the fights against Alexander Volkanovsky. And I'm definitely going to pass it off to Dan Albert because Dan has been studying these fights religiously and, you know, just ruining his mind yes. intensely, yeah. intensely, you know, going over these fights. But, you know, along this narrative, you know, with, with regard to Max, you know, what, what happened in those two fights? What was the okay. progression? What did we learn? Okay, so I want to start out with a quick defense that I did not watch these fights 49 times because I am a genuine <laughs> obsessive compulsive person. I did, on the other hand, have a ridiculous amount of notes, though. Um, okay, so basically, I'm going to try to do a TLDR version of this and fail emphatically. Uh, okay, so fight number one. Uh, basically, I'm of the opinion that basically Volkanovsky figured out that dealing with Holloway involves like preventing his kind of entries and kind of exploiting like his kind of not so great offensive ring craft. And mainly it involves like negating his lead hand and then kind of ultimately closing the door with counter punching. And although Max was able to kind of figure out, Hey, I can get stuff done with body punching and touching you later on Volkanovsky basically shut down most of his attempts to create pocket entries. So it was a very, very impressive performance. Cannot be said enough. Uh, fight number two changes the whole ball game on how I, I think we saw Holloway. Because I think going into it, basically everyone was like, well, Volkanovski kind of figured you out already. So what are you going to do differently? It's probably going to be competitive again, but like what's going to happen? And I think the thing that makes that fight so fascinating is that Holloway goes in and has this completely different like strategic approach for how things work. So he basically realizes, okay, these are the things Volkanovsky is going to take advantage of. How do I not lose any of the utility of what I was doing before, but create different utility out of it to get success? Well, taking advantage of what you know about me. And that's what he did. Like using a lead hand still effectively to create different kind of things, distractions, taking a different stance to bait Volkanovsky in, et cetera, et cetera. And that kept him consistently in the fight throughout it. it and Volkanovsky, to his credit, like made adjustments, but like they were still going back and forth by the end. And like, I don't really think either guy truly figured the other out by the end. But the really, really interesting part of that fight goes back to just how the preparation goes. Because when, because it kind of sets this interesting kind of question of whether or not like, Okay, so is Holloway looking at his future contests now with this kind of like new strategic kind of idea in mind as a precedent, like taking advantage of opponents' weaknesses to allocate his game plan around beating them? Or is this just a Volkanovsky-specific thing because he's already been in there with him? And, and I, I'm not sure there's a clear answer to that because on one hand, it's very impressive. He was able to figure out Volkanovsky's flaws and how to take advantage of a lot of them. But on the other hand, it, it's also like maybe he needs that like tactile kind of experience beforehand. So one of the most interesting questions to ask Holloway going into this is 
you have Calvin Cater who has a clear defined like set of issues and weaknesses, even though he's dangerous in specific areas, can Holloway take advantage of those things? And I think that's one of like the main central questions to ask. And realistically, there's no answer and we're not going to know till we see it, but it might be the most intriguing thing for this matchup. Right. Yeah, that, that's definitely where I was headed with that, that whole, the whole buildup. So thank you for filling that in nicely. And uh, yeah, I just, I'm wondering, this could be a good test of, of, you know, Max being adaptable because after that first Volkanovsky fight, a bunch of us were sinking our expectations of, of who Max is as a fighter. Like, is he that predictable? Is he that, you know, if you, if you have a certain read on, on the things that he builds his game off of, can you shut him down? Now, can he be shut down by people who have these specific skills? We were picking, we were picking hypothetically a lot of people to beat him after that. Um, we were we were super down on him. Uh, not you know not to a crazy degree. We were picking elite fighters to beat him. You know from other organizations. Also, Edson Barboza. Yeah, Edson Barboza always. Uh, <laughs> not really, uh, but kind of. <laughs> not me. Somewhat. That was that was a huge a huge blow up. Uh, we'll get to that some other day. But yeah, we we were down on him, and then. Like you said, the the Volkanovski fight, he he adapted like brilliantly. So he, he looked like a very very smart fighter, um, especially after he set the bar so low in the build up to the fight, being like, oh, you know, like just saying dumb fighter things and like, oh yeah, I didn't train or I didn't spar and like I all did all my training over Zoom and we're like, oh no, uh, Max, and then he comes up and has one of the best performances of his career, albeit. You know, loses the decision, but I think everyone agreed he looked fantastic, and it was an amazing, amazing fight. And then Volk also was adapting during the fight, so just all sorts of great things. So you you pose the question yourself: you're like, is this Max being adaptable, or is it just because he fought Volkanovski twice? And he said, okay, I know what he does. Um, does he need that much data before he can make adjustments, or can he do it leading into a fight? Uh, just repeating what Dan says, really, because he's so smart. Uh, so I guess one specific place where that could show up is uh, like counterpunching. So uh, Calvin Cater isn't like known as a counterpuncher, but it's definitely one of his most dangerous skills, I would say. And uh, I feel like it comes up and Shriram, you can jump in because you, you, you're a hardcore Cater studier. But I feel like it comes up mostly with straight punching. Uh, you know, I, I just remember, I, I think in clips, <laughs> I'm thinking of clips of him like coming off the center line, uh, you know, and, and like ripping the body or going like one, two slip body, things like that. But that's when he's, he tends to get off like his prettiest work uh, as off his opponents straight punching at a range he's comfortable with. So theoretically, I think it's totally possible that we see him get those kinds of opportunities against Max. I'm not, I think it's pretty likely that he lands in, in that fashion. So could this be a test of Max's adaptability of that happens can he vary his entries or do whatever he needs to do to adjust his game to stop that from happening? Or does he just weigh, weigh the volume against the you know, opportunities of counters and just kind of go uphill against it? Yeah, I think there are a couple questions here in terms of, uh, so the things that we know about Max in terms of uh, classical Max, what he tends to do is the jab and the body work. And I think as tricky as the jab is, the body work is pretty accessible against Cater for, um, the high guard and being as tall as he is, because Max had to like go all the way down with Edgar and um, Volkanovski. So if he were to tune his approach towards body work, that would be an interesting change for me to see. But more interestingly, I think 
what we looked at in Edgar and Volkanovski one, that is the last two times we faced new opponents who we didn't have concrete reads on, he relied very heavily on the jab. And I think the fact that Edgar was able to get away with cross-countering uh, Holloway fairly consistently, like not super consistently, but consistently enough that it was like a thing in the fight, a dynamic, I think that's pretty concerning against Calvin Cater for two reasons. One, Cater's probably a better counterpuncher than Edgar at this stage. Uh, and two, he's more powerful and range parity is probably rougher for Max in terms of uh, what he relies on for defense. We saw against Dustin Poirier, a lot of uh, Max's defensive move, uh, defensive options, uh, they tend to be just leaping back. Um, he's not great at uh, angling off when someone blitzes at him. When it comes to ring craft, he's brilliant. He's absolutely fantastic. But when it comes to dealing with those blitzes, he's kind of subpar, um, which is why someone like Volkanovski and Poirier was able to blitz in his direction. And I think range parity makes that pretty rough in terms of um, Max not really having proactive defensive measures off his own jab. So he jabs. And unlike someone like Cater, who gets in on, uh, who gets his, uh, gets behind his shoulder on his own jab, Max kind of just like sits there and he relies on his uh, offensive depth to like get, get a guy biting on a feint and then jab. But even when he jabs, he's still not taking defensive measures behind it. So the counter punching could be very concerning. And I think even more concerning is uh, Cater's combination punching uh, because if both guys are able to jab each other, I think Cater's the more uh, powerful and more mechanically sound person on the inside. So the question is, does Max deal with this like he did Edgar and Volkanovski one? Or, and we've seen so many approaches from Max in the past that it's very possible that um, he does something like the um, the Pettis fight, where he's able to take advantage of Cater, for instance, being a little bit more static positionally, a little bit less uh, attentive positionally than Max has been in the past, where he was like shifting into outside angles and throwing straights to the body or um, kicking actively. I think the Pettis fight is one of the better uh, blueprints for Max to use. I think the tricky part about taking Volk too is that the parallel for kicking Cater tends to be Moicano. And I'm not that confident Max is that kind of kicker. Uh, I, in terms of that confidence, I think he's never kicked in that specific way in terms of kicking on the counter to take away the jab and uh, doing those those duchies that, Ma, uh, that Moicano was doing so effectively. I think the way that Mac kicked against Volk, it was still a, a ploy to get into the pocket. He was kicking and he was using the kick feints to get in and throw combinations. And that's a pretty big contrast to how Moicano was kicking to just take the pocket away entirely. The trouble I have with Max here is that he's pretty much, the way he fights in pretty much every fight, is going to be flirting with danger against Calvin Cater. Um, one thing I want to touch upon is, so regarding the kicking thing. So I, I think a lot of people have been adamant about Max needs to kick against Cater, but I, I don't really think to touch upon uh, what you were just talking about, that people kind of understand why it's important to kick Cater and necessarily how guys have had success doing it. So uh, like you said with Moicano, oh, Moicano and Max differ in terms of kicks. So Max's kicks um, usually, I, I think his two most kick-centric performances are probably Pettis and Volk too. And their utility is different versus Volk. It was kind of more of like both a sniping and control kind of tactic. Like I keep you at a distance with this because I don't want you to control the distance at which we engage at all. Oh, but also I want to set you up at distance for these big shots in order to take you out. Whereas Pettis, it was more like attritional and like kind of disruptive as well. But main, but it was also like built upon like all the other things he was doing, like 
setting up body work, continuing to control engagements, keep those engagements up. So you have two different kinds of like utility max as shown with kicks, which differs from how guys have kicked like cater before. Because with cater, like guys typically are doing it off of manipulating his guard or like using it as a response to his jab. And most of the guys that have kicked him in response to his jab have gotten away with it, or at least are very consistent with it. Burgos did it. Ige did it. Stevens did it. Moicano would like hand fight out of the southpaw and use that to manipulate Cater's like lead hand to set up those kicks downstairs. There's and so on. So it's like, yes, Max probably needs to apply like a kicking game here, especially to like control Cater, but like he's probably not going to be capable of doing the exact same things Moicano did more. So he's probably going to be focused on more about like controlling engagements and keeping cater at bay is the way I would see it for his kicking game, at least. Yeah. The, the kicking thing is definitely a little overblown. Uh, we, you, you wouldn't know like from, from an outsider perspective to our listening audience, the amount of, conversations that we all have privately about all these things it's like not even remotely close to what you see on the timeline and one of the things we always used to fight about was would Yair Rodriguez beat Calvin Cater and (laughs) it's the Danny Martin yes definitely and everybody else know what's wrong with you uh it's like oh well Yair kicks a lot and he does it fast and like did you see him on the back foot versus the Korean zombie like Calvin Cater is not a good pressure fighter, but he could do better than that. And, you know, Korean Zombie is still one doing that. So things like that really, really grind my gears. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely worth talking about that Max isn't like a persistent low kicker or someone who like kicks in every combination or, or what have you. Uh, you kind of saw it a little bit and like, I, I think he uses them, you know, for utility. I mean, he has specific needs. That need to be addressed and he's like oh kicking could help me with that um like the first volk fight where he's his entries were getting countered with uh, like the right hand by volkanovsky he said i can make my entries less predictable by uh he's using that uh that low line side kick to enter into range just hop like hop stepping in with that um or like ending his combinations with round kicks to the body because uh you know his people are getting away from him off his entries things like that so it's not like he's gonna be just smashing in kicks relentlessly or maybe he will uh, even though it didn't work out for Jeremy Stevens, but that doesn't mean it won't work for Max. But um, what, I, I guess what I really like about this fight is the, the narrative I've been setting up in my questioning is just, I think it has the potential to answer a lot of questions about both guys, um, or at least about Max. <laughs> if it doesn't tell us anything about Cater, it'll definitely tell us something about Max, um, be it that he is who we thought he is, or he is the ideal version that we thought he could be uh, based on this Volk rematch. Um, and I guess let's let's turn let's turn the light on on Calvin Cater a little bit again. In, in an ideal world, uh, what's what's the best you could hope for for Cater? What does his winning game plan look like? What is what does his win condition look like? Um, Over five think, rounds. Yeah, I mean, I think Cater's um, a lot of what Cater's success hinges on is what Max does because Cater's like he just is who he is. Uh, in contrast to Max Holloway, who has several different approaches to pick from. Calvin Cater wants those uh, neutral jatty exchanges that I think Max is relatively likely to give him, at least, you know, in moderation. So uh, Cater's win condition is um, a very jabby fight. I think Max is going to have trouble with that because uh, Volkanovski gave Max some trouble later in, this, in the rematch. 
with that uh, jab left hook change up where he was able to uh, draw Max Perry and hook around it. That's one thing that I like to see Calvin do. Um, the counter punching, as I mentioned before, I think um, a fight that hinges on exchanges is pretty favorable for Calvin Cater. In terms of the footwork and the ring craft, I think he's pretty much completely out, outplayed. Um, if, it if, it, if the fight hinges on that, he's going to have to rely on uh, Max making a mistake. In terms of the dynamic, uh, it probably looks closer to like Poirier 2 if he wins than Volkanovski, where instead of winning several exchanges over and over, um, Cater might have to hurt him or at least limit the exchanges a little bit more because I kind of have my doubts on Max at this stage in his career after Edgar and Volk won, whether if he's getting hurt, uh, he's going to do the thing he did in Poirier 2 where he just keeps on coming harder and harder and harder being like, okay, uh, I can't get volume off without getting hurt. I have to put more volume on you over and over and over. I think he might just try to sit back, which is more favorable for Calvin Cater, in my opinion, if he's able to limit the exchanges a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I think if there's one thing that Cater needs specific responses to in this fight, um, that he actually is in a position to deal with in like one camp, it'll be the body work. Because we've seen him deal with a, a big body puncher before, right? We saw, we saw him deal with Shane Burgos, but he also kind of struggled with it in the second round. He's able to like block it with his elbow sometimes and counter punch, but some specific responses to that would be nice. Um, yeah, beyond that, it's kind of just what Max does. I think it's, um, we're going to get into picks soon, but I think it's winnable for Calvin Cater. So I had, um, besides the question of like Max's strategical changes, I had two other like primary questions about this fight. Um, we've already talked a little bit about the lead hand specifically. And I, I think uh, Julian's video does a great job talking about like the kind of games, like both guys kind of put behind their jabs, but I, I do want to talk about kind of how they differ because I think it, how Cater and Max work in terms of like building momentum is a little similar because depending upon their success, like the more success they have, usually the more they can build off of it. And so like when you see Cater be able to get his jab going, he starts putting stuff together and that's where he starts really putting it on guys. And same with Max, if he's touching you, he's constantly like doing stuff. Where their jabs differ, though, I think is kind of in utility because I would say Cater's is like the more offensively dynamic, powerful one in how he uses it. Whereas I think Max's is more capable in like situations outside of that. Um, so the question for like lead hands is really, really interesting to me. And I think it, like whoever is able to build momentum, if we see a pocket heavy battle, it's going to really come down to that kind of thing. What gives me a little cause for concern, however, is kind of like answers to when both guys' jabs are taken away. Because I know Max still has the ability to work the body. I know Max has been able to start putting kicks behind stuff. I know Max likes to touch with his jab and use it as throwaways more often. With Cater, I've seen like several times now, like guys take away his jab and usually he reaches kind of into his toolkit and kind of finds some different things to work with it but I, I think like there's still like some things to be desired because it's like sometimes his answer is usually just I'll just go after you and try hitting you harder sometimes he's able to figure out that he can touch you or like fake hooks off of it or like take advantage of guards like I said earlier but it, it is a cause for concern though that when, when I've seen Cater there's jab taken away or like guys jab with him such as Zabit took advantage of that 
that that's kind of a, a bit of a concern for me because I don't really know whose lead hand will be superior here or how it's going to be used. Because like Saram said, it's going to be how like one guy approaches it and how the other guy responds. But it's kind of a question for me of when I've seen these two guys like lose their like main weapon, how they respond. And I've always seen Max kind of respond more when that like weapon is taken away. But the other thing that's interesting to me though, and I, I've, I've talked to Haxerized about this before is when it comes to like building momentum in MMA, especially, I don't, if you let a certain guy get the ball rolling, um, how many guys are able to really like, beat max holloway over five rounds because it's like low-key that is a very impressive feat to do that we really don't talk about enough because i i don't remember who said this but i think there are two ways to handle max when he gets the ball rolling or at least stop him from getting it rolling the way he wants you either have to make him back off and or make him think poirier managed to do both but partially because Poirier has just super nuclear power and can compete in layered exchanges. Um, and Volkanovsky basically figured out that like, I don't have to compete in these layered exchanges with you by taking advantage of things. So he made Max have to think to that different level. And although both guys barely won those fights, not counting the first fight with Volkanovsky, it's still a testament to their ability that when he did get that ball rolling, like they were able to find ways to keep up. So for me, the question is, how many guys are able to do that? Because the, the other issue with Cater it, that I have for this fight is how well is he going to do if the exchanges become more layered? Because I've seen Cater like good at creating exchanges when they get into the pocket and then punctuating off of them. But what happens when those exchanges keep going? Because when I see guys go after him sometimes, he sometimes defaults to covering up and then the body shots start landing and everyone who has tried to do that succeeds. And that's especially a problem because when he backs up, he has like a few default things. He'll either guard, which leaves the body open. He'll switch the southpaw and start trying to hand fight you to get some kind of directionality or safety. But I feel like in terms of the pocket battle, if it gets there, Cater's chances with punctuation and willingness to fire will lead to probably some wicked competitive exchanges but over time like as many answers as i can see for him i just always find one or two more for max to like use and i do i do think cater is a very good fighter but i know max holloway is one of the best builders and best tacticians in terms of making adjustments especially the more the exchanges happen or the more he builds flow so it's kind of hard for me to see like Cater winning this over five, especially the longer it goes and the more like hypothetical body work adds up. But I don't, I don't think it'll be one-sided. No, no, I don't think it'll be one-sided either. And I think how competitive it is and what kind of fight it looks like will depend on how Max approaches it because Cater tends to want every fight to be the same way where it's, you know, kind of a mid range where he can, you know, maybe you try to pressure him a little bit, but you know, he has his time to, you know, relax and, and get his space and do what he wants to do and, and kind of, you know, manage the mid range and, and come in and out as he pleases. Uh, and then if you enforce something on him, that kind of changes how it goes uh, where with Max, he's, he's probably best when he's pressuring. I think that's pretty safe to say. 
Um, but he doesn't always do it. So I, I brought up the Frankie Edgar fight. That's a fight where it made sense to me for him to pressure, but he didn't. So I feel that in, in this fight, it's kind of the same case where I understand completely the hesitation to pressure hard uh, in both the Edgar fight and this fight. In the Edgar fight, because you know it opens you up to reactive shots a little bit more uh, with Edgar's takedown game or you know with power punching, which could be a thing. Um, with Cater, you know, the big threat is getting punched hard in the face and the harder you pressure, the higher percent chance that you might get punched hard in the face in the early going. But based on everything both of you are saying about Cater's game, the, the wheels are going to start to come off like the, the, the weaknesses are going to start to come out more if he pressures him, you know, if he puts it on him early. So uh, I think very quickly into the fight, you know, within the first couple of minutes, we're going to know what kind of fight it's going to be. And, you know, best case scenario of it being a blowout is kind of a rough first couple minutes, but then Max gets all the reads he wants and Cater, you know, becomes uncomfortable. And then that goes in his direction versus, you know, being more patient and taking his time. It's going to be a much closer fight for longer um, until there's a, a breaking point in either direction. Is that, is that a fair premise? Yeah. I mean, that sounds right to me. I think, the worry that I have with assuming that Max is going to um, make all the reads is like, yeah, Kellen Kater is, he's strategically one note. And if something like Mac, like something like Andre Feely going southpaw a lot kind of made Kater visibly uncomfortable, which is something that you could see Max trying to like work with. But also uh, I can't really move past how he looked in that Edgar fight because it's like the last time he's faced an, that and Volk won, like the last time he faced an opponent who he didn't have a ton of information on, like in terms of, fighting them before and neither was a particularly adaptive fight in terms of strategy more in terms of tactics like if you saw the Volkanovski one uh, you saw Max turn to hitting the body a little bit more in these exchanges and kicking and he switched to southpaw but I think that was more a thing of Volk killing his lead leg from orthodox for the first couple rounds so I think those were Max didn't change the way that he fought in terms of pressuring Volk he fought he changed what he did inside that framework and I think that's the kind of fight in which Calvin Cater excels, because if you look at a fight like Shane Burgos, uh, Burgos put a lot of pressure on him. He did a lot of jabbing. He did a lot of kicking. And I think Cater, he likes that kind of fight where someone isn't, where someone lets him go in and out at will. And I'm not sure Max is necessarily the guy to take that strategy away from him as much as it is a guy who might beat him on the tactics within it. So I think like, for example, the Edgar fight, right? Edgar was able to blitz in and out, and um, he was punished for it in the clinch, but he also wasn't really taken away from that, if that makes sense. Like Max didn't uh, pressure him hard or draw him forward with any kind of um, defined strategy. He just kind of fought in neutral. He fought in neutral, he jabbed, he tried to draw out responses and kick. He did his thing, but I think that kind of fight is the kind that gets him in trouble against someone more powerful in a range parity. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a tricky fight. And if Max is able to get all those reads off Cater's jabbing and his counterpunching, it's very winnable for him because Max could uh, just win Cater's fight on Cater's terrain. It's very possible. Max, like as much as we're talking about Cater being more powerful on the inside and very capable, Max is too. And Max is probably the smarter guy in terms of tactics, as smart as Cater is in terms of tactics on the inside. And I think Max is a, he's a justified favorite in terms of how many strategic options he has because I don't think the kicks is what's going to do it. I think it's the outside footwork that's going to annoy uh, Cater if Max goes towards that strategy. 
because, um, you know, guys like Lamas and Stevens tried to kick, but it was Zabit and Moikano who extended the range and made Cater chase them. And I think Max, it's very doable for Max to do that. My question is, at this point in his career, is Max particularly likely to move away from what he does best or what he's most comfortable doing against an opponent against whom it may work? Because we saw against Volkanovski, it did not work, and then he switched to something else. Is it, this is my first fight against Cater. I think I'm way better than him. I'm going to do my thing. And combined with all the damage that he's taken recently and Cater just having a little bit more of a margin in terms of durability, I mean, I, I'm pretty much just being a contrarian because everyone else is picking Max, but I, I'm going to go with Cater. Dan, last last thoughts about this matchup because I'm going to move on all after right. this one. Um, okay, so another thing I, I wanted to think about usually with this is um, a, a question of, uh, I'll play a bit of some devil's advocate because although like I do like I am going to pick Max I am going to say some things that I can see Cater having some success with I don't think Cater's outside game is particularly good but one thing he tends to surprise guys with is like if they come in on him he sometimes times front kicks down the middle very well he catches guys very consistently with that and then cracks them pretty hard he has success working guys around their guard but especially if they sit and for all intents and purposes, Holloway is not like say Jeremy Stevens, Dan Ige, et cetera, in terms of like head movement and active guard. But like usually when Holloway's instinct is to look on the inside, like he, he's trying to extend it. So he'll often try to parry first before moving his head as his first instinct. Sometimes like he'll hop back because he wants to elongate the exchange but it can kind of get him in trouble if like the, the other guy wants to pursue or is capable of pocket boxing too. Um, so that, that kind of thing might help cater out here. Cause like both guys kind of tend to fight on a bit of a straight line with the center line in particular. And I, I think um, Max is more capable of working around, but I think like on the inside cater is probably superior or at least is kind of tighter, if that makes sense. But yeah, I, I think um, what this fight's going to come down to is I think we've already established it. It's just um, it's a matter of like what Max is going to do to control engagements, whether or not he can win the engagements when they happen. And for Cater, like what kind of engagements are going to favor him? Who's going to build momentum if those engagements happen? Um and I, I think a lot of those things we really won't know until we see them happen, which makes it inherently fascinating. Um, although I am going to say I expect this to be a competitive fight, I understand why some people do think it might be um, a blowout for Max. Yeah, Max, um, in terms of like, but I, I see that happening down the road, probably like round two onwards, because I, I think early on it'll probably be competitive because like both guys will try to figure each other out. Um, as for like a, a potential like knockout or like cater hurting max, I won't, I don't think I can buy that until I see it. Although I totally think it's plausible because at some point damage will catch up to guys. It's just like how it'll probably catch up with Poirier one day. It'll catch up with Gaethje. It'll catch up with everyone, but, um, and it will catch up with max eventually, but I kind of feel like I need to see, those things to believe it, but it's not something that you should ignore. But um, I, I feel like 
ultimately just um how how I see this fight is just as I've already outlined I I think it's just versatility and tactics that will take over the fight as it goes on and just having more answers but I I'm very excited to see this it should be really good yeah it's uh if you ha- couldn't tell by the you know the entire podcast we have more questions than predictions for sure and I think that makes it a really interesting fight to watch like I'm very much looking forward to seeing what happens and I'm also excited to watch it with Sriram because we haven't done a live commentary together in a while and it's always really fun and then we always share the same brain during it and end up having the exact same takes but then Sriram goes rogue and on another podcast says that um Fig Moreno was more com- was Harry. less competitive than uh, than Fig just Joby the first won. Round. Just the first, just round. The first round. He qualified it, but that is not a take we agreed on from the commentary. That's very um, true. You, you Although did. we also didn't watch Fig Benavidez together, so that's true. That. That's true. It's too sad. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm super interested in watching it, and I think the point of if you want to go like minimalist analysis, Max is really really durable. He is deeper as a fighter. They're going to strike. So he'll probably win. <laughs> so if you want to go with like the least amount of thought possible, I, I would favor Max. If you want to go with the most amount of thought possible, which we've been doing this whole week, uh, it still seems like a favors Max. So that doesn't mean something that we didn't expect can't happen. And maybe we'll look stupid or maybe it's something we could have predicted. Let's find out. Listen, guys, if, jo- if Jose Aldo at like, being a mummy can wage a competitive fight against Piotr Jan the way oh, yeah. he did, then like some things, crazy things can happen. For sure. For sure. Oh. Speaking of mummies, um, <laughs> the co-main event is oh. old nice. people is one way to say it. They're actually, I mean, in actual human years, they might not be that old. Carlos Conde is 36 years old, which you're like, okay, that's pretty old for MMA. Old. And Matt Brown is 40. And you're like, yeah, that's really old for MMA. But then you realize that they've had, like, Matt Brown has had over 40 fights and Condit has had over 40 fights. So that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of damage. Um, they both have not been, you know, <laughs> it's the, the flex tape commercial. <laughs> uh, it's a lot of damage, though. Uh, and neither of them have been super defensively responsible for any part of their careers. So you cringe. They're cringe when they're still fighting at this point. You wish they wouldn't, but they are. They're kind of glad they're fighting each other, right? You know, if, you know, fighters who are super deep in their careers and definitely past it are going to keep fighting, they should fight each other because that's probably safer, maybe. Or is it worse because now you have two people uh, who are extra vulnerable to take, you know, life-altering damage instead of one in the matchup? But, you know, the mismatch, It's also kind of more less useful. Oh, yeah. As- if two guys are old, then you kind of want them both to lose because then they might retire. And then if yourself. you give them to someone young, then I want they them get both like... to win, Jerome. That's never going to happen, though. <laughs> the fans, the fans want to win. Anyway, I, I think it's uh, it's important to discuss the way in which each of them are old. Uh, some might say shot or washed, but that doesn't look the same for every fighter. You know what I mean? It's it's different case by case. The way in which they get old. Um, for example, usually it means that their chin goes. That didn't happen with Carlos Condit yet. However, it's also important to notice that his losing streak is all, it's all grapplers. It's just him getting grappled 
every time. It's the Lawler fight, which some people thought he won. I don't rem- I, I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion on that. And then Damian Maya, that is an acceptable way to get grappled. Neil Magny, less less acceptable, but I could see Prime Condit getting taken down a bunch by Neil Magny. So it's not like that's that out, out of the ordinary. Uh, Alex Cowboy, that's, that's a little worse. Um, but again, he is very strong. And uh, it, it starts to suggest that the way that Condit is regressing is like frailty. And he's becoming less physically capable. Um, you know, his he's body worse at the not... things that he used to be bad at. So it's like, yeah, it's not, never like he was like super strong or anything, but he was always very, you know, athletic and physical, albeit janky. Um, so, you know, his body's starting to slow down a little bit. You're like, okay, this, this makes sense for him to lose this way. And Kiesa also grappled him. So you only really have evidence if you don't watch the fights because I don't remember <laughs> what happened to them because I'm not going to rewatch those fights. Um, you really only have evidence of, of one one area of decline, essentially. And I think in the Chiesa fight, he was still actually fairly competitive off of his back, yeah, which he is won interesting. Round one off his back. Which is interesting. Um, and then he beat Court McGee, and I didn't. I, I probably watched it. No, I don't think I did watch it. I didn't watch it because I haven't was... seen Holm versus Aldana, so I doubt I watched the undercard. Yeah, it was kind of weird because it kind of looked like Condit was about to check out after the first couple minutes of round one. And then he dropped um, McGee at the end of round one with like a big shot. I don't remember what it was because I also haven't watched it since. Yeah. But uh, he dropped McGee uh, at the end of round one. And after he was like, oh, I actually want to be here. And he started actually doing <laughs> other things. But it was also kind of, a, it was kind of a weird thing because McGee kind of thought like he didn't know who Carlos Condit was. McGee probably could have just leaned on him on the fence a lot more than he actually mm. did. But he I just see. fought in space, which was bizarre. So he didn't look better at the because stuff that he warrior. was bad at. You know, it's stand and bang. Speaking of standing and banging, so then you have Matt Brown. And uh, listen, so for Condit, he has a big losing streak. So you're like, yeah, if you're a casual fan, because you have to be selling this to people who aren't paying a whole heck of a lot of attention just because if they've been watching the fights, I don't know why they'd be excited about this. I, I know some people who are good fans who are not excited about it, but like, yeah, I want them to fight just because it's going to be like, oh, they're going to smash together a bunch um because they know them well but they they have they have what they like um that's okay but if you're trying to sell matt brown as someone who's still vaguely relevant his losing streak doesn't look terrible besides that he lost to jake ellenberger but like you have like he fought robbie lawler in that five rounder really good fight then he gets wrestled by johnny Hendricks. whatever that that happens he beats tim means cool win um damian maya again fine totally cool Jake Ellenberger, okay. Uh, but Jake Ellenberger did exploit his biggest weakness, which is his kickable, fragile body, uh, and he kicked him in it. And the Cowboy fight, I think, was kind of competitive for a little bit, and then uh, they hugged, and he lost his edge. And uh, then <laughs> that's exactly how it happened. And then Cowboy kicked him in the head, uh, murdered Diego Sanchez, which doesn't mean anything at all, um, and then murdered Ben Saunders. So he's done a couple murders. And then uh, Miguel uh, Baiza, I don't know how to say that, but I think they had they had a competitive fight where yeah. they they did action. So it's like okay, like Matt Brown is still a reliable action fighter. He can still do some serious damage. He's still in there, you know, competent doing his thing. So you could say that. Uh, and then with Condit, you're like, you know, on the feet, he's not really, you know, inept. Like he's still watchable. He could still beat fighters if they only strike with him. So neither of them are even remotely close to their primes. You know, not even like. I would say a husk is 
uh, too much of a compliment, but you know, they, they can do things. They work. It's not like a, it's not like Diego Sanchez who can basically do nothing at this point. Um, they're not that level of shot. So I felt that whole rant was necessary just to put in perspective the kind, the kind of washed up that they are. It's not, um, not just they old, not going to watch. It's like, okay, this could be sort of a fight. It won't mean anything, but it could be a fight. So I'm sure you guys have a ton to say about this one. <laughs> Go ahead, Dan. I know you've been holding it. All right. <laughs> All right. So, oh man, we sometimes wish years were, would just go back. And I have to imagine if this was like 2013, 2014, it's hard to really think of a more violent fight on paper MMA could have had back then. And I mean that sincerely. Um, yeah, it would have been amazing probably from like 2013, 2016. But um, alas, we live like five years later or something because I can't do math. And and we have Matt Brown, who used to be frailty as thy ribs, ibs versus Condit is his alien head still intact kind of thing. Which, speaking of which, holy freaking shit, is Condit's chin insane? If you have watched his whole career, it makes no sense. And for some reason, I decided to rewatch the first round of the Woodley fight the other day, and literally Woodley hits him with like the cleanest right I have ever seen in my life. And Condit's head literally teleports, and he's like, fine. And it makes no freaking sense. And then there's like, like the final two minutes of the Lawler fight, which I don't know what other welterweight would have survived that, but hey, I guess Condit's head is made of some like unfathomable substance material that probably comes from the same dimension that where Usman gets his gas tank or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, so uh, at this point, this is sad. And um, man, I wish we had like time magic and stuff, but uh, you know, hopefully they, they have something fun. Maybe it, it's not as sad as like a Shogun Little Nog 3, but it's still it's still kind of like hopefully we get something out of it and hopefully hopefully both guys look at least decent but um we'll always be fans of these two just because of what they've succeeded but um it, hopefully they both retire or something but hopefully it's a last hurrah it's uh, they're both like great fighters and we love them to death and hopefully like they secretly de-age and we get something amazing i don't know but hey if it had happened a couple of years ago um would have been way cooler is all I'm saying because then they would have gotten into like fried Takayama elbow exchanges or something. And it would have been amazing. Okay. Not really, but, um, but Condit probably would have won because he's in fucking destructible or something, or it would have been at least super violent. I, I don't know. It, it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of sad, but you know, we'll, we'll still cheer for them regardless, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was never a huge Condit guy, and I, he was fun, obviously, but uh, Condit wasn't really my uh, cup of tea, I guess. I'm not British, so that doesn't really work. But Condit wasn't really my thing. Um, Indians drink tea for your own. Yeah, but I'm Learn in your own culture. <laughs> Indians threw tea into the harbor. No way. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, Condit wasn't really my thing. Um, his striking was always, it was always very smart, like in a certain sense, and that he could see a vulnerability and kind of rip it to pieces. But uh, those weird blitzing raids and uh, the takedown defense just not existing. On the other hand, Matt Brown was someone that I always liked a lot. Uh, the Eric Silva fight, especially, which was just uh, all of Brown's flaws in the first minute and everything great about Matt Brown in the next two rounds. Um, 
so this is weird because Carlos Condit is still, I, I have some questions about his chin because he actually did get hurt pretty badly by that up kick from Alex Oliveira. Oliveira like kicked him uh, right in the face and Condit was pretty much dead after that and got guillotined by Alex Oliveira. So that's, uh, that's some bad news. But um, I think Condit's probably still the more durable party because the up kick didn't actually kill him. And uh, we can't say the same about the left hook that Baez landed on, uh, on Brown in that last fight. That said, uh, Brown is still foot sweeping people. I think he foot swept uh, Ben Saunders and he is going to foot sweep Carlos Condit and lay on him forever. Let's go Brown. Yeah, I didn't I didn't bother to actually try to figure out how the fight was going to go, but that that would be interesting. <laughs> I hope he doesn't do that. Um it's funny they they definitely put this in the as the co-main event just because of the name value because they're both so well known. The the more interesting fight below that is uh, the return of Santiago Ponzinibbio, I thought that would never happen. I thought he was done for real. It's been... I still don't believe it's going to happen. It was November 2018, which honestly feels a lot more recent than it was. <laughs> like, I, I thought it had been, you know, 10 years since his last fight. And you know what's funny is his win streak didn't age that poorly. Like, usually when a guy's been out for three years and, like, today, like, it doesn't it doesn't look as good anymore. Like, who are these people? Um, but, I mean, Gunnar Nelson, which is a I'm not going to make excuses for the Gunnar Nelson fight because all of his fights have the same excuse where Ponzinibbio has poked every single one of these people in the eye. So I can't say just because he poked Gunnar Nelson in the eye, that one doesn't count. You have to say his whole career doesn't count. So he's poked everyone in the eye. Um, but yeah, Gunnar Nelson and Neil Magny are still relatively relevant. And uh, I, I've, I've always thought highly of Nordin Taleb. So I think that's a good win. And uh Mike Perry has been good in a couple fights, is how I will say oh, Strickland's that. Strickland's doing well now. Strickland's doing well. Uh, you know, that was a while ago. So you know, he he still has some relevant wins in the mix. Although, do they do they mean as much since they were before or whatever? Probably not. But you know, he he's if he came back in and got a win over like an active welterweight who is winning fights in this division, it would be a good sign. Um, I, I didn't. I never thought super highly of him. I always thought he was kind of like a power puncher with a good one-two and a low kick, um, which might be exactly what he is. I'm not positive. I haven't studied him. Uh, and uh, Li Jingliang, who's he's fighting, I, I thought he was going to be... Well, I don't know. I never know how to appropriately evaluate Neil Magny um, <laughs> because I always think he's less good than he is because I don't really enjoy his style. But Let me do it. Oh, you want to evaluate Neil Magny? No, no, no. Uh, Neil Magny has this magical power where people keep clinching with him for no reason. Yes. It's pretty cool. Yes. And uh, he, uh, him and Li Jingliang wrestled a decent amount in their fight. And uh, Li Jingliang out-wrestled him in the first round, which was interesting. Uh, but they just kept doing it. And eventually wrestling with Neil Magny and clinching with him gets very tiring. And then he beats you at it, which is uh, that Tony Martin fight, or Rocco Martin. Sorry, he changed his name. Uh, that that was a silly one where uh, Rocco Martin was winning when they weren't clinching, and then he clinched with them, and then he just kept doing it until he was losing. Um, it's not that simple, but it kind of is in a way. So Neil <laughs> Magny's a weird one, but Li Jing Liang um, beat uh, Eliseu Zaleski dos Santos, and ZDS didn't look great in that fight compared to how he's looked in other fights. But Li Jing Liang looked kind of good in that fight and uh, he also looked kind of good against David Zawada who isn't great or anything but he's been improving a lot uh Li Jing Liang is so I thought he might turn into someone who's pretty interesting just because he's like 
pretty athletic, like very physical, you know, hits hard, like is, is kind of crazy with the way he fights. If you remember his older fights, he's the crazy swing in the pocket guy. Uh, just lots of, lots of pocket hooking <laughs> and, it, and it worked for him a decent amount, um, which there's a, a degree of attributes necessary to make that happen. So I thought he might be kind of an interesting fighter. So losing to Neil Magny doesn't deter my interest that much, I would say. Uh, so this fight might actually be kind of cool. just because Ponzinibbio likes to punch people hard in the face and Liu Jingliang likes to punch people hard in the face. So I assume one of them will succeed. I mean, I think one weird thing about Li Jingliang is that uh, he's kind of like, I need to get dropped to get going type. I think he got dropped by David Zavada um, early in the fight, or at least he got badly hurt. And then he ended up, uh, what's that? I said, oops. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, um, and then he ended up beating him with like a, a side teep or something like that, like right to the body, which is pretty cool. Uh, him starting slow might be bad against Ponsonibio coming back like in prime form. But also, I kind of expect Ponzinibbio to just, like, not know what he's doing for the first round, at least. He's been out for three years. I think Ponzinibbio started putting it on Magni from, like, the very beginning. So if that happens here, it could be pretty rough. But, you know, it might just be, like, Ponzinibbio being very nervous but still winning for, like, the whole thing. And, like, like oh, Ponzinibbio's uh, done as a contender, but he's still, like, an action fighter, which is kind of how I feel about Legion Liang after Neil Magni. If you lose to Neil Magni, you're not a contender, but, you know, you can still be fun. Winner loses to Tony Martin. Hold on. I, I had I had something prepared for that statement in, in response. Um, if you lose to Neil Magny, mm-hmm. not a contender. Darn. Now these <laughs> all make sense. I'm looking at his record. I was like, oh, Johnny Hendricks, not a contender. But yeah. He wasn't after that. After, you know. <laughs> Kelvin Gastelum. Was he? Okay, yeah, fine. That but also, that was supposed to be a draw. That should have been a draw, though. All right, that's the only one. That's the only one I can come up with. I thought there was going to be more. Like, surely he has. <laughs> um, I, I thought he had some some wins in his pocket that were like, all right, I'm going to get you with that one. But I did not. <laughs> I still want Tony Martin to do well, but, you know, he lost to Neil Magny, so he was doomed. As Dan pointed out, that was due to magic and shouldn't be held against him. I'll take it. He did beat Damian Maya, so. That he did. Um, Dan, do you have interest in Beijing Leong versus Santiago Ponzinibbio or just, you know, passive? Um, my serious answer is I have not studied Santiago Ponzinibbio enough and literally did not find out he was fighting till literally like 13 hours ago or something. And even then, Jinx, he's going to probably die of heart failure and not show up or something because uh, he's cursed. And I'd like to think dark thoughts. Um but assuming both guys show up, we have, of course, forgotten the real important meat of this fight, which is the Ipoke War, because today is the, it is finally time for us to truly embrace the power of finally getting an MMA fight with nonstop fouls, because that is what we deserve. And so who tears the other guy's out, eye out first wins basically a bonus of 50K is the new UFC rule for this fight, hopefully. The money's on Ponzinibbio. Jing Liang eye pokes out of desperation. Ponzinibbio eye pokes out of pleasure. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, There's a difference. It's obsession. (laughs) No, no, sincerely. uh, Yeah, I'm not not prepared to talk about this fight in detail because I have not watched either guy enough, sincerely. But um, 
I hope it's hilarious. What I will say is that other Danny was super into Ponzinibbio for a second, and then he just stopped doing anything, what like whatsoever. Danny was like, "Oh, Ponzinibbio actually kind of bad." So yeah, he's pretty much just a one. He's that's what I've seen one two on a low kick, but that was enough to like beat the crap out of Neil Magny. So clearly, he's doing something right. He has a good one two and a good low kick. <laughs> Very true. Didn't he get probably... like grapple fucked at some point? I feel like I did. dude. Why would I have rewatched the fights of a guy that I didn't expect to ever fight again? It's, it's unfair. Unfair to expect that from me. Might have been Ryan LaFleur. Was it Ryan LaFleur? I don't know. I don't watch Ryan LaFleur fights. He had a... Maybe. Um, anyway, so there are other fights in this card. We don't have to actually talk about them. I'm just going to name them. Uh, Joaquin, Joaquin, I guess. Joaquin Buckley, who is the, the meme kick man. Uh, probably going to win. I, I didn't check, but I assume he won knockout of the year by pretty much every major outlet because... It was ridiculous. Um, and Impaka Sangade is actually kind of good in, in a way. So the knockout is slightly meaningful. Uh, we talked about this a lot last week. I shouldn't talk about it again. Um, he's fighting Alessio de Chirico, who is Italian. Um, and that is very important that he's Italian um, to me and, and to my friend, uh, Al Zulino. And uh, all I remember is that uh, this guy is from Rome. He's, you know, Roman. Everyone's like, oh, you're a gladiator. He said, I'm not a gladiator. I'm a knight. So the specific subset of Italian culture he subscribes to is like the Christian era. So he's like more into the Crusades than like the Roman Empire, which is probably a poor choice. But you know, it's more power to him. Knights, knights are of a higher social class. So he uh, he's definitely doing some classism with his Italian culture references. But uh, he is on the three fight losing streak, which is why he's not very good. Why is he in this matchup against? exciting main man that they're trying to sell i guess maybe they just picked a guy they're like oh you you want to come back fight fight the guy who we're trying to build um he lost to kevin holland which has aged better than expected uh mahmoud moradov who is actually kind of good and uh zach cummings who i think is pretty functional um despite looking like he should be very very bad so it's not the worst three fight losing streak in the world he also beat julian marquez before that uh, who is who's decent as well? So I, I think the the three fight losing streak is a little bit misleading. Uh, uh, Joaquin Buckley does a lot of good stuff, and he does it very hard and athletically. So I think it's a rough matchup if you are not super sound or durable. And uh, I'm not positive if he is either. He has never been knocked out, so maybe it'll be a good fight. I don't know. Uh, then before that, we have uh, Punaheli Soriano versus Dusko Todorovic, which is a dope name. Both dope names. Um, I've definitely watched Soriano. He's a uh, contender series guy. So I think he's like contender series guys where he has some some good offense. And that's the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the general premise there. Uh, and then on the prelims, we have Ryan Wagner's favorite fighter, uh, Nasruddin Imovov, who is a, uh, I, I don't know where in the Caucasus he's from, but a, a Caucasian fighter uh, out of France. I think he's a grappler, and that's all I know about him. <laughs> he's fighting Phil Hawes, who they've been trying to make Phil Hawes happen for like five years. Do you remember that? It's been a yeah, while. Yeah, isn't that the John Jones' teammate guy? John Jones, just... former training partner, like might have been on like a wrestling team with him or something like that. He was on like Contender Series five times, finally impressed, and then knocked out the. They tried to Robert do Whittaker's him teammate. on the Ultimate Fighter. They tried to do him on the Contender Series. They've been trying, trying that one out for a while. Um, 
and I believe Julian Marquez, uh, who I just talked about, uh, had kicked him on the contender series. Um, I yeah, I can't predict that matchup at all. <laughs> I have never heard of these women's bantamweights, uh, Wu Yanan versus Joseline Edwards. I've heard of her. She would my nan. Jeez. Jeez, no, that's awful. That's pretty good. That's the worst. Actually, no, that's awful. Once I thought about I, it, <laughs> I think this was supposed to be Best Cohea's retirement fight, and then some rando filled in. So. Well, that's unfortunate. Early wanted Best to retire, and then we have <laughs> the heavyweights: um, Carlos Felipe versus Justin Taffa. I've heard of Justin Taffa. I think he trains out of Tiger Muay Thai or, you know, City Kickboxing. He's from them parts. You can't specify. Um, here's one that's kind of relevant, uh, maybe. David Zavada versus uh, Ramazan uh, Emeev, and they're kind of good, right? Yeah, Emeev is like, a, he's kind of the Magomedov mold, where he do, throws like one strike every round, but uh, Ryan likes him for that reason. And uh, Zavada, I don't remember much about his game, but he gave some guys a competitive fight. He gave Li Jingliang a competitive fight, and uh, I think he choked out that Nurmagomedov guy, one of the bad ones. Is, is, uh, I think like the one that is actually closest related to Habib, the PFL one. Um, yeah, he he triangled him in the first round. In fact, so uh, relatively interesting. I think I actually watched David Zavada in KSW. I used to watch KSW and uh, saw him saw him fight there. And uh, he's a, he's a decent grappler. So that fight could could be interesting. Uh, Sarah Morris versus Vanessa Mello. I don't know them. Well, I, I do I do know Sarah Morris, but I don't. I don't really know her. Um, and then uh, I believe a debuting featherweight, Jacob Kilburn. Don't know you. Austin Lingo. I think he fought Yusuf Zalal. Is that right? I think Kilburn was the one who lost to uh, Billy Quarantillo, right? Wasn't he? Oh, did he? I feel like he did. Heck if I know, dude. Um, <laughs> I'm, I, I, it's, it's been too much. So, I mean, I've been watching MMA since 2010-ish, like summer 2010. And for most of that time, I would say like six or seven out of those 10 years or 11 years now, um, I tried to watch everything, every UFC fight, every Bellator fight, every fight I could get my hands on. I watched all of it and I am super, super duper burnout. So I do not watch the entirety of every card anymore. <laughs> um, so I, I do miss out on some things. So if you're a, an extreme card watcher and you're like, how don't you know these people? They've been on four fight night prelims. I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I've missed it. So You're referring to Fano, right? <laughs> yes. We're all a la carte fans. Yeah, I'm an a la carte fan. Um, yeah, Simon. Shout out to Simon, too. He watches the Bellator prelims. I only watch the Bellator prelims, and there are wrestlers I know who are fighting. But Utter psychopaths. Reminds me of my teaching career. Yeah. So that's that whole card. I think we have talked a lot about it, and I am ready to be done talking about it. What else is going on? I only care on? about Cater Holloway, honestly. Yeah, yeah, what else is going on? Do we have anything else to, to plug, disclose, confess to? There's the Kiesa Magni card. I nah. know you guys are hyped about that. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that used to have Rivera Munoz, too, and then they moved that to a different card, so I can just skip that card. Well, we'll talk about it next week. Because we know we have to do another podcast next week. Yeah, I mean, sure. it might just be us recapping all the way Gator for yeah. the entire time, and also no. Poirier and McGregor, which matters more. Yeah, mm-hmm. but we'll talk about stuff. Dan, do you have things to promote or 
Uh, if you want to rate my ridiculously long stuff, uh, you can find my Twitter account. I recently wrote a two-parter of Volkanovsky Holloway 1 and 2, and um, I think I did okay. I have no idea. I'm just waiting for someone to tell me Very good. shit. Oh, thank you. Um, I'll tell yeah, you it's bad if you want me to. I'd be lying, though. Wow. I, I did tell Lukash to tell me if it was bad or Hex, one of them, because they they know they can hurt my feelings or can't. I don't know. Um, yeah, uh, Poirier McGregor is very interesting. Um, I, I'm trying to come up with devil's advocate for Poirier to maybe win that, and I might just post some threads writing another article anytime soon. Unless I get bored, which happens frequently, and I'm just insane or something, I, I, I don't know. Cool. Sure. I, I've ran out of jokes. <laughs> yeah, this is really fizzled. I have, uh, I have nothing to plug. Let's just get okay. this over with. Well, I uh, I'm studying for standardized testing to get into uh, grad school, so I'm not writing for Bloody Elbow for a couple months. So. Don't look for my articles if you if you did look for them before, uh, but you know the podcasts will will continue because they are not that hard, honestly. Uh, that's why we should definitely be hitting them weekly every time. Uh, but yeah, so just uh, stick around for next week, I guess, and we'll we'll talk about the fight and oh, look on Patreon if you're a patron. Look for our commentary on Holloway Cater that'll probably go up on Sunday. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a good fight. Talk to everybody next week.